0: The Reverend Robert Jones Sr. is a storyteller and American Roots musician from Detroit. On April 19, I spoke with Reverend Jones in advance of his Saturday, April 24th virtual concert presented by the Trumansburg Conservatory of Fine Arts.
1: My name is uh, Robert Jones Sr. and I am an ordained A Baptist minister and a pastor in the city of Detroit, ergo the Reverend. But um, for over 30 years, I've also been a professional musician, storyteller, and music educator. And, um, you know, that has helped to augment the vast amounts of money you make as a Baptist minister. (laughs) So I really really enjoy uh, or did enjoy the idea of traveling around the country and uh, sometimes outside the country and sharing this love I have for traditional African-American music in particular and, you know, folk music in general.
0: So let's start here. You play a lot of instruments, guitar, harmonica, mandolin, banjo, fiddle. What was the first instrument you learned to play and how did you pick it up?
1: Well, I would say that would be the harmonica because when I was a kid, uh, my grandmother brought home this recording, and it was by Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Now, my grandmother loved many kinds of music, but there was something about that uh, particular record that just struck me. First of all, it was solo acoustic blues. It was like two guys, right? A harmonica player and a guitar player, and they were playing off of each other. There was no band, there was no drum, there was no electric guitar instrument you know i've heard all that stuff growing up but this was like really immediate it was just two guys making music. And it really sounded more like four or five guys making music, you know Sonny Terry, who was a a great harmonica player who happened to be legally blind. He had had an accident when he was a little boy and it left him basically with very little sight and brownie mcgee who was a guitarist who had contracted polio. And so one leg was shorter than the other. So that is the way that people in back in the day, I guess, who had um, other abilities or disabilities or whatever you would call it, that's the way a lot of people made a living um, by going and playing uh, music in the streets. And they used to play outside the tobacco barns in Durham, North Carolina. But anyway, when I heard that music, it immediately, for some reason, just got my imagination. And the cheapest of the two options of harmonica and guitar, the cheapest option was obviously a harmonica. So I, I got a harmonica and started trying to play along with Sonny Terry on the record. And eventually I went to a pawn shop, got a guitar, and started to play along with Brownie McGee. And before I knew it, sort of the die was, was cast. And I, I found myself being this really Weird kid who loved country blues in the middle of Motown.
0: <laughs> so, who were some of your other main early influences?
1: Well, again, like I said, my my grandmother loved many kinds of music. I grew up with, you know, hearing the sound of traditional gospel, uh, Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers, the Harmonizing Four, Reverend James Cleveland, Aretha Franklin. All those were voices mm-hmm. that. I heard because of her. Of course, I also grew up when Motown was in its heyday. So I, you know, listened to the Temptations and the Impressions and the Supremes and Marvin Gaye and all of them. But then, uh, you know, I was also this strange kid. And I discovered that as I came to appreciate acoustic music, that it was broader than just blues. So I. Um, I used to watch Hee Haw when I was a kid. <laughs> Love it. Um, and so I grew up like loving, you know, the sound of uh, of uh, Merle Travis or or uh, uh, George Jones or you know certainly um, uh, Roy Clark, and so I had this really kind of eclectic and, and broad listening palette that has served me well actually over the past thirty some odd years as a performer.
0: Absolutely. And so you've recorded six albums of traditional and original music. Mm-hmm. So where do you find your inspiration for the music that you've written?
1: Well, the thing that's really wonderful about the tradition of, you know, traditional music is that I think there's no tradition more important than the tradition of making music, right? It's like you can either approach it as if, you know, the the great um, and influential musicians like Sunhouse, Lightning Hopkins or Robert Johnson or whoever, as if they had the holy grail to this music. Or you can understand that these people were guys just like you. They happened to grow up in the 30s, they happened to grow, or grow up in the 20s. They happened to have their issues, but their issues to them was no less or no more significant than your issues to you, right? And so if you take that template of blues and gospel and country and American folk, it's still relevant. You can still write about things that are of concern to you. I was just looking at the uh, closing arguments of the trial that's happening in Minnesota right now. And, And I was just thinking about how a lot of songs should come out of that. Should come out of that experience of George Floyd, and um, if Woody Guthrie was around, he would have already written a ballad of George Floyd, or or you know uh, many others. Uh, Lightning Hopkins would have written a ballad about George Floyd. So it, it it really is a matter of applying sort of the skills or the template that. Those women and men have given you and applying it in new ways to new visions and new and new songs
0: to to riff on that I can only imagine you know clearly thinking about the most recent news of police shootings of Dante Wright and Adam Toledo, thinking about, as we talked about the forthcoming verdict for Derek Chauvin, and, you know, even thinking about continued anti-Asian hate that's going across the country, really thinking about what the role of arts and music is in terms of understanding. It's
1: interesting that, you know, you th- you, you think of an artist like Woody Guthrie, and Woody Guthrie was really, you know, this white kid from Oklahoma. He found himself in a situation where he saw african americans being mistreated he saw mexican americans being mistreated he saw you know inequities all over the place and i think his artistic temperament caused him to want to write to champion those people and to give those stories names or to give those people names and to put those stories in context as a as a minister i found myself just you know a couple weeks ago uh, commenting to our congregation over Facebook, of course, but commenting to our congregation, it's like, how can we see a 65 year old Asian woman being beaten by this absurdly large, hostile black man who had killed his own mother. And you know, your only instinct is to film it. When this happens, These guys the security guard locks the door, right? He doesn't rush to her aid He doesn't say leave her alone He locks the door and so some of the same things that we you know We look at we look at a Emmett Till or we look at some Situation that happened historically and we shake our heads and say how could people do that? They still do it, you know, And, and and they we still rationalize as to why that is is somehow not an abhorrent thing to do. So yeah, it's, it's plenty of material. <laughs> the, the question is, what are we going to do with it?
0: Absolutely. So thank you for, for sharing that. And you are an ordained minister and, and a Baptist pastor. How does that tie back into your music?
1: Well, that was, <laughs> that was a very interesting um, period in my life before I became a Baptist pastor. I was a I was an associate minister and our pastor of more than 35 years passed away suddenly he had a pancreatic cancer it took him really quickly and the question was you know what would the church do you know who would the next pastor be and he had a number of associates and for whatever reason all of the associates you know we, we all had problems one guy had been married and divorced three or four times and another guy was like 17 years old and another guy was a workaholic and the fourth guy, that was me. My only issue was that I played blues. Oh. And folks uh <laughs> <used> <laughs> their imagination and figured, you know, this guy, he's going to be, you know, playing blues up in the pulpit. And he's going to be talking about, you know, cheating, drinking and all it. which of course hadn't, you know, I was not ever interested. And that aspect, I was always interested in the cultural aspect of the music. And so we went to this period where we had um, an interim pastor. We had upheaval. We, we went without a pastor for three and a half years. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm going like, hey, you know, dude, why me? And, you know, you get this, like, why not you? <laughs> so so uh, they have a church meeting and uh, I get a phone call. It's like, congratulations, you're the new pastor of our church, uh, and the church had been around for you know over fifty years. Then, so now I've got a decision to make, and my decision is like, okay, do I give up playing this music because other people view it as an impediment to ministry? And I was willing to do that. I had basically dropped off the scene, and and one day I was I was um, catching a, a flight somewhere. And I had my guitar with me just basically to kill the time because I still love playing guitar. And this kid walked up and started asking me about what I had in the case. And by the time we finished that conversation, he was talking about issues, spiritual issues and questions that he had and, and what was truth and what was spirituality. And I realized that God was not telling me to give up this music, but to use it in a different way. And so ever since then, my emphasis has really been on this idea of celebrating uh, diversity, of highlighting the fact that, you know, this African-American music, which was dismissed as being simple and and rural and, and uh, repetitive, this music really helped to shape American popular music throughout the last over a hundred years. And, and then when I came to realizing how powerful this music is as a form, as a way of self-expression and artistic expression, then it all sort of fit together. So my congregation came to know that, you know, he's crazy, but he's <laughs> but he's sincere in what it is he's doing. And he uses that, you know, he uses his music uh, as much in a classroom as in you know, at a festival or or something like that. In fact, uh, I used to joke and we tell people, I would much rather play for kids than to play for drunks. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is WRFI Community Radio. I'm Pamela Tan, and I'm speaking with storyteller and blues musician, Reverend Robert Jones Sr. You've definitely, in many ways used your deep knowledge about music history in various ways. So you've taught music history to various audiences including at Wayne State University. Could you give us an example of how you've been able to tie both music and history together?
1: You think about history often is to find from the top down, hmm. right? And you've got the people who are, you know, supposedly educated and and the writers and and the folks who are sanctioned to talk about what history is. They talk about treaties and alliances and wars and, and, you know, financial shifts and changes and things like that. But what folk music does and what uh, art does is this history from the bottom up. So if you've got some guy who is in the midst of the depression, trying to figure out how he's going to survive, and how his family is going to survive or you've got somebody who's running away from oppression or you've got these songs that remind us of our commonality that you know poor black guys working on the railroad were being abused in the south poor irish guys working on the railroad were being abused in the east poor chinese guys who were working on the railroad were being abused in the west and so you, Everybody has that common experience and the the music is the thing that expresses that. So if you kind of just look for songs decade by decade, songs written during World War II and, and about World War II will give you both the pro and the anti-war sentiment. Huh. It'll give you both the patriotic and the true patriotic side of that experience, because if people were singing those songs and they were recep and they were being received, then they were saying something that appealed to large parts of the population. Then when we get rid of those songs, I mean, you know, we, we move on to the next thing. The songs are still left. So if you if you know how to look for them, it can give you insight into a lot of America's history, world history, social change, attitudes, conflicts, and, and so that's sort of what I've done for over 35 years.
0: Thank you. And so you also co-founded an educational organization called Common Chords. Tell us about that.
1: I have a friend who I have known for over 30 years. His name is Matt Latroba. And he is a folk singer and he's grounded in country. Uh, I think his dad thought every, everybody named Hank, Hank Williams, Hank Snow, uh, all all the Hanks, uh, these were essential to, to a, a boy's upbringing. And I was, you know, my family, with my grandmother, I was grounded in blues and gospel. We we met each other over 30 years ago working at a public radio station in Detroit called WDT. I had a blues show, he had a folk show, and somebody thought it was would be a good idea since he played and I played to have a concert where you know matter would meet anti-matter. So let's, let's see what happens when the blues guy meets the folk guy. And we ended up playing country music half the night because that's what we had in common, mm. right? And that whole idea of the chords we have in common over a 30 year uh, friendship had, has evolved into a nonprofit called Common Chords, which in a nutshell is about trying to celebrate the things we have in common instead of fighting about the things that we have different, right? If you share values, you don't have to be the same person. You know, Matt and I are very different people in terms of our uh, likes and dislikes in terms of our religious affiliation but when it comes to values you know it's like both of us have been married over 30 years i have two kids who are adults he has four kids i have two granddaughters he just you know his, his daughter one of his daughters just gave birth to a grandchild so you know, when we go places, we hit used bookstores, we, you know, we basically have more in common than we do to fight about. And the message is that if you get past the surface differences, uh, we can have a conversation. One of these days, red and blue are going to get have to get past the politics to realize we're all in the same country and we're all dealing with a lot of the same attitudes, prejudices and and guess what you can sit here and say i am this thing i am white i am black i am asian i am whatever but then all of a sudden your kids they may grow up and fall in love with somebody who is very different from you and now you now your grandchild is the other and what's going to be more important to you to maintain your uniqueness or to love on that grandchild and to, to appreciate that, you know, when you see George Floyd, you could very well, or maybe when you see, you know, Trayvon Martin, you may very well be looking at a scenario that affects your grandson or your granddaughter. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, time for us to sort of evolve past this territorialism to the idea of saying what chords what things what values do we have in common
0: thank you you're a storyteller a musician a teacher a minister a pastor a co-founder of an educational music and arts organization do you feel like you've reached all your goals
1: oh no (laughs) it's like yeah, yeah i was thinking about you know I was thinking about that when i was kicking around the idea of, of writing memoirs and you think well or a memoir you think you know it's like there's so many amazing people that you encounter who have who have lived these amazing lives it's like you know what do i have to write about but one of the things that occurred to me that encourages me to every once in a while sit there and and, and bang out a few paragraphs is the fact that when you come into the world you sort of come in you know, uh, as a blank slate. And let's say you find something that you really like, then you become a student of that thing. And, you know, let's say once you've been a student of it for a while, you become a practitioner, right? And then once you have done it enough and people say, hey, how do you do that? You become maybe a teacher, right? Then as you get older and, and your hair starts to turn white, and, and, and you realize that the folks you learn from, some of them have passed off the scene and you're the old guy now, right? So then you become a tradition bearer. And so through every one of those things, you don't lose any of those identities. You're still a student, you're still a practitioner, you're still a teacher, you, you might be a tradition bearer, but then what is the next step that you're being called to do? And it's really, good. you know, one of the things you do is you're a communicator, right? You're one of the, you're a bridger. You're a person who bridges folks who may not know the other person, but by the end of the work that you do as an interviewer, they know, they know that other person better, right? So you never get tired of doing that. The question is simply, what's the next step in that evolution? Well, thank you.
0: Your virtual concert, headed up by the Trumansburg Conservatory of Fine Arts, is this Saturday, April twenty fourth at seven p.m. What can the audience expect?
1: Whoa! (laughs) Um, (laughs) One of the things I love to do is is the idea is you know this conversation has been fairly heavy, but the concert is not meant to be heavy. It's not accusatory. It's not you know your people did this to my people. It's not that. It's very much about this idea of something we all love. We, we love music or we love the stories that are attached or conveyed through this music. And it's about the idea of picking up an instrument and saying, you know, this instrument may have had its start in Europe, but the way that those transplanted Africans to the Deep South, the way they took that European music and made it their own is really what makes it American, right? And so you have this this constant flow between white culture and Black culture. You would not have country music without the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. But the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers would not be who they were without the fact that Jimmy Rogers was essentially a blues man. He worked with Black railroad workers. and the Carter family had a friend by the name of Leslie Riddle, who was African-American, who would go with AP Carter, and they'd get all of these great traditional black tunes. And he taught Maybel Carter the, the rudiments of guitar playing. You got Bill Monroe. Bill Monroe learns from a guy named Arnold Schultz, a black man who did, who never recorded in Kentucky. But if you listen to the music of Chuck Berry, you hear him borrowing lick for lick from Bill Monroe. And, and so it's, it's this amazing mix of music that tells a story, right? Traditionally, and then on top of that, you have those stories that are relevant to you as a person, as a, you know, I have a story about my great grandfather who came from Connecticut County, Alabama in in a time of the rise of the Klan. And my great grandfather was bold enough and and crazy enough that when a a white man slapped him, he knocked this guy down. And, you know, I, I found a way in my musicianship to tell my great grandfather's story. It's a story that I enjoy because it is not good guy versus bad guy it is not black versus white it's it's grays it's like they're various shades of today i can be the good guy and tomorrow i can be the bad guy and you can be the good guy and you can be the... it's it's situational you know i'm sure that chauvin did not wake up you know that morning and decide i'm gonna you know i'm gonna kill this man i'm arresting it 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 is one of those things where you are constantly checking your values, your conscience, your your barometer, your your divine barometer uh in any situation that we're in. So I love stories that cause us to to understand that there are very few people who are inherently good and very few people who are inherently evil. We are shaped by our values. And and so that's kind of part of my message and part of my presentation. And on top of all of that, we try to make it fun. (laughs) So
0: I am so looking forward to your concert on Saturday and I'm looking forward to reading your memoir when it is ready and printed. And I so appreciate you taking the time to speak with us here at WRFI.
1: Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you reaching out. I, I really, um, love the fact that, you know, Trunensburg is a conservatory. And when you you hear conservatory, you think, you know, European music uh, from a certain vantage point. But there are institutions that recognize that all of it has value. And that is, again, if we celebrate um, everybody, if we now don't, you know, try to create this, this, uh, what was that thing they used to call the melting pot? (laughs) If you start to treat it as a stew and everybody's got something in the stew, then it's richer Dish. So I really appreciate the fact that they host uh, music like mine based in three chords and five notes. And uh, I'm looking forward to Saturday night as well.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much. Thank
1: Thank you. you. Well, you know, Miss Obama, politics are mighty rough. Some folks think you too black Some think you ain't black enough I say, Lord, how much?
0: More information it on Reverend Robert Jones Sr.'s virtual do. concert is available online at tburgconservatory.org. You know, the song no you heard, Lightning's New Barack Obama Blues, was Somebody's written and performed by Reverend Jones. You. you can hear more on his website, revrobertjones.com. Reporting from WRFI Community News, I'm Pamela Tan.
1: Now I gotta tell you the reason why. Oh, you know the people.